don't know if you have brothers or sisters. If you do, I'm sure you've tried to trick them from time to time or get something from them secretly. And our story, this series is about Jacob, who seems to do that rather a lot, not just to his brothers and sisters. And I have to say, Jacob is one of my favorite characters of the Old Testament because he is so real. He is very flawed, very slow to learn, and so he does give me a bit of hope. And we're going to go on a bit of a journey with Jacob over the next few weeks. And what we're doing is we can't take in all his life because there's a lot of chapters about him. We're going to especially focus on his encounters with God. And what we'll see is that that hopefully is a journey. Oop, Jacob, I'll let you do it. Thank you. It's a journey of transformation. It's one that gradually transforms him to be the person God wants him to be. It's a journey that actually begins in Bethel, which is what we've seen today, and will end in Bethel in 20 years later, when we look at the last series, or the last of our series when we get to Genesis 35. But what happens with that journey is it transforms a cheat and a deceiver into someone who wrestles with God and is blessed by God. So really, this is the journey from Jacob to Israel, as we've seen when Chris gave us that last bit of the, of the quiz. And that will make more sense when we get to the final couple of sessions. But there are some really great lessons we can learn from his life. And actually, before we get into today's passage, we should just sum up his life to this point. I know we've had the quiz, but we'll try and put it all together a bit. How does he get to this point where he's running away from his brother, leaving family, leaving home, leaving everything he knows, and going to the unknown? Well, the story starts with the birth of Jacob and his brother Esau, these two twins, and this happens at least 40 years prior to today's story. It's a story of conflict. Even when they're in the womb, these two brothers struggled together. Very literally in Genesis 25, it says they kicked and shoved one another in the womb. Imagine that, right from the start, two brothers fighting. Never seen that, have we? But it's so bad that their mother, Rebecca, prays and asks God, what on earth is going on? And God lets her know that in his plan, he's going to form two nations out of these babies. One will be stronger than the other. The older would serve the younger. So the brothers are born, and even though they're twins, they are very different. They are not identical twins. In fact, they're so different that their parents call them names that I don't think we think are appropriate today. So the first one comes out all hairy, but not just hair, red hair. So he gets called Esau. And later on, and sometimes in the Bible, he's called Edom, which means red one. It's pretty much the first redhead that we know in the Bible. So I'm sure all the redheads out there are feeling sorry for him already. The other twin was born so close afterwards, Jacob, he came out holding on to Esau's heel. We saw in that quiz, didn't we, that it means part of that. But one who grasps or even someone who deceives, and I won't go into how they get to those different meanings. But can you imagine calling your two twins Harry and Grasper? Not great names to give your boys. I'm not sure what Chris and Sam were thinking, but it does get better, Jacob, okay? Hang on, you'll get a good bit of a name later on. But not only were they born different, they grew up very different. Esau loved to be outside in the fields, learning to hunt, whereas Jacob liked to stay at home, hang out in the camp. One day, as they grew older, Esau had been hunting. He couldn't find anything to eat, so he stumbles home at the point of desperation, starving, hoping to find something to eat there. And what does he find? He finds Jacob was cooking a lovely stew. 
So Esau begs him for some, and here Jacob sadly lives up to his name of grasper. He said, well, you can have this stew, but on one condition. You have to let me take your place when it comes to inherit everything from dad. All the good stuff, the land, the, the animals, the servants, all the riches, I'm going to inherit if you want this stew. Well, I'm kind of not sure what Esau's thought process was, but having teenage sons who just want food all the time, I can imagine it was a bit like that. He just saw the food and said, fine, done deal. So for the price of a pot of stew, Jacob gains the inheritance rights. He lives up to his name and grasps hold of something that really wasn't his. Esau was the firstborn. Well, the story goes on, and Isaac gets old, and Chris mentioned this. He come, it comes to the point when Isaac is thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty old. It's about time for me to go home to be with God. I'm going to call Esau to go and hunt for some animals to cook a last meal so that I can bless him as my firstborn son. And we know the story, I'm sure. Jacob, with Rebecca's help, tricks Isaac and gets the blessing instead. Remember how hairy Esau was? Well, Jacob got some goat skin and covered his arms, dressed up in Esau's clothes so that Isaac would think it was Esau. And by that time, Isaac was blind, so he couldn't tell the difference. So Jacob tricks his own father into blessing him instead of Esau, living up to his name again. No wonder Esau is furious with him. Says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright. And now he's taken my blessing. Jacob was a grasper and a deceiver, a real Jacob. And so Esau wanted to kill him, as brothers do. And so Isaac, who still hasn't quite popped his clogs yet, decides to send Jacob back to Rebekah's family and country to sort of be safe from Esau, let Esau cool, cool down a bit. And in the meantime, he hoped that Jacob could find a wife from among his own people. So that's where we pick up the story in chapter 28. And we're going to go through the passage. We'll go through a bit quicker than usual today with the way we're doing the services in the summer. And we're going to see that there'll be an amazing dream to start with, verses 10 to 14, an awesome place, verses 15 to 19, and then a solemn vow, verses 20 to 22. So let's think about this amazing dream to begin with. Put yourselves in Jacob's shoes for a moment. Think of the longest journey you might have done. Now make that journey one where you're going by yourself, you're leaving home, family, friends, the familiar, setting off for the unknown. Not even sure when you'll come back or if you'll ever see your family again. That's what verse 10 describes for us. Going from Beersheba, which had become pretty much established as where Abraham and then Isaac were living. So it's Jacob's home the place of security, of family, the familiar, heading off to a place called Haran, a journey of several hundred miles on foot, a dangerous journey, a lonely journey, no one else with him. How would you be feeling if you had to make that journey? And remember, back in those days, no sat-navs or Google Maps or mobile phones to call home, no WhatsApps and definitely no TikTok. You would be on your own. I can remember at the age of 16, returning from Africa to England, everything I was familiar with, sunshine for a start, warmth, of going from a small missionary boarding school with about 50 children to a rather large English comprehensive, all different, not the easiest time of my life. I'm sure Jacob is no doubt then anxious, worried, 
as he journeys along. Well, in verse 11, nighttime comes and he finds a place to rest. We're not told where, just in verse 11, a certain place. When we put the whole story together, we know this must be either very near to or on the outskirts of this city or settlement called Luz. Verse 19 tells us that. And maybe it was actually a religious area already, some kind of shrine, maybe even a small mini temple like a ziggurat, which was the kind of temples they had back then. I've put a Minecraft version up there. If any of the young people want to make that later on, I'll be delighted to see it. But that was the kind of temples they had back then. And we read that Jacob, when he's in this place, grabs a stone, uses it as a pillow, and puts it under his head. Not sure that would have enhanced his camping experience, but anyway, he does that. Then in verse 12, we read this amazing dream that Jacob has. He sees the original stairway to heaven. Hopefully some of you will get that reference, if you're my age at least. But what is it that he dreams? Well, verse 12 tells, verse 13, sorry. No, verse 12 tells us he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and there above it stood the Lord. Three things, the NIV kind of smooths it out, but if you have an ESV or an older version, you'll see the word behold three times. The narrator kind of is giving us Jacob's perspective. Behold this ladder or steps. Behold the angels of God. Behold the Lord. So what is this vision telling us? Well, he sees this flight of steps or ladder. Now, I think a flight of steps is more likely because based on that kind of temple structure, that's how they imagined that you would go up to heaven and down. Probably wouldn't work on a ladder that you'd use to paint your words, you know, your walls. And then the next behold, we have the angels, messengers, ascending, descending, which would also make sense on a ladder, on a staircase rather than the ladder. They're bringing God's messages accomplishing God's purposes, serving God's people. This is not a pathway for Jacob to get to heaven, as the people tried in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. But it's how God, this picture of God, continually interacting with his world. Of course, it is picture language. Angels don't actually need a staircase, in case you're wondering. But what he sees in verse 13 is the most important thing. He sees God himself, the Lord, Yahweh. Now, different versions will say Yahweh was on top of the structure, maybe he was way up the top. But actually, if you, some Bibles have a footnote and say he was standing over Jacob, and I think that's more likely. He's there, Jacob is lying down in his dream, and there is the Lord standing right next to him, over him. Because Yahweh, the Lord, speaks to him in verse 13. He doesn't call from heaven. And Jacob, when he wakes up, will say, well, the Lord was in this place. So in this vision, there's a sense of closeness to God that Jacob has never experienced before in his life. And what does God reveal to him? Well, he begins by revealing who he is. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And when I first read that, I don't know if it struck you the way it struck me, but it felt like there was something missing. Because for many years of reading the Old Testament and hearing it in the Bible time and time again, if you're like me, you're waiting for that last bit. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what we're used to hearing. But actually, we haven't got to that point yet in Jacob's journey. Yahweh, the Lord, is not yet his God in a personal way. And in fact, if you go back to chapter 27, when, I, when he's trying to trick Isaac, and Isaac says, well, how did you get that food so quickly? Jake, Jacob says to him, the Lord, your God, helped me. 
God was not, the Lord was not his God yet. And maybe there's a little bit of a, a potential challenge here. God is saying, I'm the God of Abraham, first generation. I'm the God of Isaac, this second generation. What about you, the third generation? Will I become your God too? But there's also a reminder, I'm the God of Isaac, that guy you've just deceived. And so God is also letting him know, you can outsmart your brother Esau, you can deceive your dad Isaac, but you cannot cheat or outsmart me. You can't Jacob me. Now, hopefully what God says to Jacob in, in the rest of verse 13 and 14 is very familiar to us. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Why is that so familiar? Deuteronomy, yep, but why else? bit simpler. Why do we recognize those words? Two seconds, one. Oh, there God's promise to Abraham. Yeah, it was very simple. I wasn't trying to be too theologically clever. We've heard them already in Genesis. If you know your Old Testament, God comes to him in chapter 12, doesn't he, to, and gives that same promise repeats it chapter 13 chapter 15 chapter 22 and then isaac gets the same promise chapter 26 so this is a theme of passing on this blessing from abraham to isaac and now to jacob and actually incidentally isaac has already begun that process we won't read them but at the beginning of chapter 28 verses 3 and 4 he says may god bless you and he says may he give you and your descendants the blessing given to abraham it's a prayer of a father for his son in accordance with God's promise and God's will. But the, the thing that strikes me in these verses is that God makes all these gracious promises in spite of the mess-ups and lies and deceit that Jacob has used so far in his life. And in these promises, God is the one who will do everything. What is he going to do? Well, he's going to give him the land on which he's lying. Very familiar promise. The language in verse 14 then talks in the same way that God speaks to Abraham. Your descendants like the dust of the earth, uncountable. They'll spread out in all directions, west, east, north, south, filling the land. And that crucial promise, all nations will be blessed through Jacob and his offspring. Isn't that a radical change? Jacob has been using trickery and deceit to grasp for blessings but God says, actually, no, I am now going to make you a blessing. You, your children, your children's children. And it tells us blessing is not something we get from God as the result of following a formula or we twist his arm. It's something God just does graciously in spite of us so that we might in turn be a blessing to others. And that brings us to verse 15 where God kind of personalizes the promise. He says, another behold, and then says, you know, all that general stuff, well, now this applies to you particularly. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Promised you. God's presence, God's protection all the way to this new place. And actually, Jacob, that's the good part of your name. Somehow it can also mean may God protect. So you can hold on to that one. I'll bring you back to this land. What a reassurance as he leaves home, family, and safety. 
And those wonderful words that he won't leave him until he's accomplished everything as Jacob sets off into the unknown with just the clothes on his back. Well, and a bottle of olive oil, as we'll see in a moment. But in all this, Yahweh is the giver, the doer, the promiser. Jacob simply receives. All those things he'd been scheming for were now freely and graciously promised to him by God. So no wonder after seeing this vision, he reacts and talks about an awesome place. What does he say? Verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. I had no idea, he's saying. And really that's his whole life up to this point. He had no idea what God wanted to do with him. And so God intervenes in this abrupt way, beginning this process of changing his life, this journey of transformation. And he begins by challenging Jacob's theology. But Jacob, Yahweh the Lord, was just the God of his dad and his granddad. A clan God, like all the other peoples around, had their own deities. A local God to them. But he's left home. He's gone a day's journey, perhaps more. And he finds the Lord is there too. And in this vision, he finds that the Lord is not just in this place, but his eyes are open to see that the Lord is the God of heaven. And so his reaction in verse 17 is very natural. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Very literally, how fearsome is this place? It's the same word both times. God's presence leads to that sense of fear and awe. And so he realizes that somehow this is, as he says, in the second half of verse 17, none other than the house of God, the Beit Elohim, which is why he then calls it Bethel or Bethel in verse 19. This is God's house. And maybe it had that structure we saw earlier, that ziggurat. Maybe this is just a figurative way of speaking of his encounter with God in that place, which he then says is also the gate of heaven, seeing the angels coming and going. Whatever we understand by that, it's the only time we get that phrase in the Bible. We could see this as some kind of sacred space. Maybe as you wander around a cathedral, you sense the centuries of worship in those amazing buildings. You, you sense there's something sacred. Maybe this is what Jacob is talking about with this language. So to mark the occasion, what's happened, verse 18, early the next morning, Jacob takes the stone he'd placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. That's a very common use of stones in the Old Testament to serve as witnesses, to serve as memorials of special occasions. Jacob will do it with Laban in, in chapter 31. But here, this serves as a visible symbol of the divine presence. It's a representation of God's house being at this very place. And anointing it with oil consecrates it to God, sets it apart for God. This is your house. And so we see in verse 19 that this place that used to be called Luz is from then on known as Bethel. I'm not sure what the inhabitants thought about that, but at least for Jacob and Israel, this place was now Bethel, the house of God, a place of encounter with God. And so Jacob responds by making a solemn vow. Verses 20 to 22. Now when you read the vow he makes, it might sound a little bit cheeky. God has just appeared to him promised him all this amazing stuff, and the first thing he says, well, if God will be with me, and if God will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, will give me food to eat, clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then. If, then, it's, is he doubting God's word? I don't think so, even though it might sound that to us. It's just a standard way for them to make a vow 
and say, yeah, I believe you, God. You do your part, then I will do my part. And what are the three things Jacob commits to? Firstly, Yahweh will be his God. He will worship Yahweh, the Lord. No longer then is he just the God of his father and grandfather. He is now the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a significant point in his life. And then that means he will prioritize worship of the Lord. He sets up this pillar as the house of God. It's the start of that. Obviously, he's about to disappear for 20 years. But when he comes back, Bethel will play a big role in their family life. It will become the house of God for them. So he prioritizes worship. And then lastly, as he goes on, he now directly addresses God and says, of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. He's realizing it's actually not through his trickery and scheming after all that he will be blessed. And he's making that commitment. I'm no longer going to live independently of God. And rather than grasping for every last thing I can get, I'm going to begin giving back to God. So you could say he expresses his commitment to God in terms of loyalty. You are my God. Worship. Here is your house. Lifestyle. I will give a tenth. That is the beginning of this journey of transformation that we start with Jacob, starting and ending here in Bethel, the house of God. A story of transformation through and through as God meets him. A certain place becomes the house of God. A stone pillow becomes a pillar of remembrance. A man who's lost everything is on the run, is promised all he needs and more. A grasping deceiver becomes God's chosen person to continue his plan of blessing the whole world. So how might we apply that to us this morning as we close? Well, a few thoughts. Firstly, transformation begins with God's gracious intervention. Jacob had been deceiving and grasping. God steps in. The fleeing deceiver, as one commentator says, received such a word of grace. And we see that repeated in his life, not just this time too. And it's true, isn't it, for us as well. As sinners going our own way, we receive such a word of grace. And that's repeated time and time again in our lives. We receive forgiveness, the promise of God's presence with us always. The last thing Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, I will be with you until the end of the age. And there are moments where we're more aware of that, of God breaking in and redirecting us, as in Bethel here. But there also, the rest is the normal, everyday, ordinary, day by day, following God. It's not that we're seeking a Bethel experience, but that as we faithfully, and like Jacob, sometimes not so faithfully, walk with God in the mundane, ordinary, everyday reality, God can change a luz into a Bethel a certain place into an experience of God, a pillow into a pillar of remembrance, an ordinary place into a sacred space. Transformation begins with God. Transformation is a long journey with no shortcuts. Jacob starts here, doesn't he, by making the Lord Yahweh his God. But as we'll see, there is a lot he still has to learn. And the process, with our, as we journey with him, will cover 20 years of his life, and he's still not the finished product. There is much for us. We, cannot, we are not transformed 
in an instant until the Lord returns. In the meantime, it's a slow process. Transformation should also lead to greater awe of God. We can't really claim to be changed by God if it doesn't provoke greater worship and awe for who he is. And I think Jacob just began that journey. I don't think he really fully grasped it. We read elsewhere in the Bible that the fear of God releases us from the fear of man. But when you look at Jacob's life, it is marked by fear of others. He is afraid of Esau, so he's fleeing. When it comes time to leave Haran, he's afraid of Laban, so he sneaks off in the night. And when he gets close to home, he's afraid of Esau, so he does more trickery and chicanery to try and get out of that. He still hasn't learned to truly fear God and truly trust God, even after 20 years of God's promises to watch over him and bring him back. As I said, I can relate pretty well to him. The transformation then requires a response. There should be that response of loyalty, of worship, and of lifestyle. Are we truly going to make the Lord our God? Are we going to prioritize our worship of him in all aspects of our life? Will we change our lifestyle where it's needed? For Jacob, it was a tithe. He loved to grasp things. A tithe was beginning to give back. It will be different for each of us. There's also a challenge here for the younger generation. I can look out and see that for many of you, your grandparents are Christians, the first generation. Your parents are Christians, the second generation. How about you, the third generation? Will you follow God for yourselves? Will God become your God, not just the God of your parents and your grandparents? We can pray certainly for those who are at Hill House that that would be a Bethel experience for them, but it would result in change and be the beginning of a process, not just a one-off great week. Well, let's pray for that process of transformation in all of us. And lastly, then, transformation begins to align us with God's purposes for our life. Jacob was in the process of being changed from someone who grasps and deceived to being a blessing to others. Through you and your descendants, God tells him, all nations will be blessed. Of course, that's perfectly fulfilled in that final descendant, that descendant, that seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ himself. But God wants us to enter into that too. He wants to use us in his mission to bless and redeem the world. And that requires transformed lives. So let's pray this morning as we begin this series that God continues to transform us into the likeness and image of Christ. God's ultimate purpose for us. Let me pray.